I'm Alex Auerbach, and I'm a performance psychologist with experience working in the NBA, NFL, with elite military units, and Fortune 5 executives. I'm excited to bring you the Perform podcast, where we unlock and uncover the principles and practices of health and high performance for teams, individuals, and organizations, so that you can be your best when it matters most. Super excited for this conversation with Dr. Christopher Henriksen today. Christopher, how are you? I'm good, thanks, and thanks for the invitation. Well, this is like a long time coming for me. I've been a big fan of your work uh, in the nerdiest of possible ways. And so it's a real privilege for me to get to sit here with you for a bit and learn from you and get to understand kind of what's influenced and informed your work. Before we get into the research and the incredible work you've done in, in Denmark with Team Denmark, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, uh, like you say, my name is uh, Christopher. I'm um, I'm a professor at the University of Southern Denmark, uh, where I do research, and most of that research has been related to talent development, with a specific focus on the talent development environment. I, I know we'll come back to that in a bit, but that has been my interest for, for a long time. But then, at the same time, I have also been um, a practicing sports psychologist uh, for Team Denmark, which is the sort of the Danish lead sport institution and Olympic committee. And uh, I've been that since 2008, so quite a few years now, where I have traveled with um, some of our national teams to big events like world championships. I've been at the Olympic Games three times as a, as a sports psychologist and, um, and sort of been trying to help Danish athletes uh, thrive and win medals for Denmark. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a really good journey. And along the way, I've learned a lot about also sort of incorporating uh, the the research part of my life with the more applied part and it's not always easy but uh, when you manage it's really nice <laughs> that's awesome well I want to start with your three trips to the Olympic Games then give us give us your lessons from three trips to the Olympics what what have you learned oh whoa that, that's a big one I think um I think I learned a lot of things right I, I think I learned that um you can't go to the Olympic Games and start sports psychology interventions there. So athletes who are somehow struggling with their mental game or just struggling in life while they're at a really, really important championships do not have the capacity to reach out and ask for help if they don't know you really well. So we, we, we really learned that, you know, the whole groundwork needs to be done very well from at home. So that's one kind of lesson. I think there's also a lesson related to my own uh, performances that I really need to take that seriously and do my own sort of routines and my get my training in and everything because it's a long uh, it's a long and stressful event also for the sports side. And um, and then I think I learned two things that are quite related to my um, to what I write about also. One is that um I think already in London which was my first Olympic uh, games is a uh, we learned that when when the pressure is really really high, it's very hard for athletes to control their minds. Um, I was working from a more classic cognitive behavioral approach, you know, trying to you know identify unhelpful thoughts, swap them out for better ones, and and I realized that that work was just simply too tough when it was. Um, so that so we changed the way that we approached that. Maybe we can come back to that also. And then the final one is that. Um, well, basically, nobody does it alone. So uh, it's really important to have a strong, good environment around you. And, and that takes a deliberate effort from all the people who are involved in the sport to, to build that environment that allows athletes to, 
recover when they need to to thrive you know and to uh, to focus on their own performance and and all that stuff so so it's not just about sort of the individual mental strength of the athletes it's a lot about creating a good environment so that, that would at least be some of the lessons yeah those are great great lessons and you're opening up all the avenues i think we're going to spend the next bit of time talking about but let's let's start with the change in your approach. So you mentioned you started with a more cognitive behavioral approach and that wasn't working. What was the change you made? Well, I think we, um, when we came back from the London Olympic Games, I, I sat down with some of my colleagues that we've shared and realized that we had similar experiences that we had done like a really thorough groundwork, you know, identifying thoughts that were unhelpful, uh, teaching athletes to like, like you know, classic thought stop processes, and, and you know, to exchange exchange the processes for better or the thoughts for better ones, like a cognitive reframing type uh, interventions, and and we felt that all that worked well, and you know, we'd made it work well in the training and in in the smaller competitions, but at the Olympics, we felt that the pressure was um, just way way more than what they'd ever experienced before, and that made this. Um, too hard and they spent too much energy trying to control the mind which left not enough energy to uh, focus on the actual performance uh, um, and so and also we realized that new thoughts came up and for some reason the athletes had not learned like a meta skill of dealing with the thoughts they had swapped the actual thoughts for better ones so when new thoughts came we, they were left a little bit without a defense and so uh, we we were lucky enough in Team Denmark that we said, well, you know, we need to discover what this is all about, try to find out. And then we were allowed to do some study trips. And we went to um, INSEP in France, in Paris. We went to uh, visit the United States Olympic Training Center, Olympic and Paralympic Training Center. And uh, we met up with Peter Harper there. And we discussed these new approaches around mindfulness and ACT and uh, and uh, and then we started, you know, testing it a little bit and with the athletes and see how they responded to it. And 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 some of the, the key ideas in an ACT approach is that it's not about controlling your thoughts and emotions. It's more about accepting how they are and, you know, committing to your values, really knowing what you want your performance to be about, what you want you to be about, what values you want to strive to sort of live out and and if you can, if you know that, if you really have a firm grip on your values and you are also able to um, be in the present moment and register the things that are going on and accept that as part of the journey, uh, then 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 it's just much more focused on on the actual performance and it's easier for you to be to experience well-being, but also to experience being like actually really in the moment and, and performing there. So so um so we slowly started to change that perspective. And uh, what we found was that the athletes told us that they, it was almost a relief to them. Like they'd lived with this idea that they needed to be able to control these thought processes and they felt that they couldn't, but the stories were that everybody else could. And so there's something wrong with me that is difficult to say out loud, right? And, and, uh, and it was like, once they realized that it's absolutely human, that, you know, the mind just races. And if, if you can learn to live with that and then just focus your attention on what's important in the given moment, then that's enough. You don't need to be always having positive thoughts and always feeling self-confident and all that. Um, so that was a, a total game changer for us and, um, and also for the athletes. 
That's amazing. And I, I commend you and respect a lot that you were willing to revisit your own approach after seeing it and not working. I mean, in, in many ways, that's what we would expect and hope for from the best coaches, the best sports psychologists, the best practitioners in the world, right? They're, they're changing and adapting their approach to fit the needs of the people they're working with. And I can hear in your new approach, um, some of what you've written about in your Team Denmark theory of performance excellence, if you will. And one of the things I most respect and admire about you is your willingness to put your thought process out there and actually share what informs your work and, and try to move the field forward in a significant way. I don't think we have enough people openly talking about this is the way I see excellent performance and this is what the work of a sports psychologist looks like to bring that about. So maybe tell us about your theory of performance excellence, how it dovetails with some of the work in ACT and, and where you are now in your thinking. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot for that. I, I agree. You know, it was, um, we discussed that for a while. I mean, should we, did we want to write about it and publish it and share it openly? And we agreed that uh, if we ask the athletes to live a life in line with their values, we should do so too. And, uh, and our values is all about, um, you know, sharing and, and developing, you know, and not just competing all the time um, as, a, as, a, as a sort of a sustainable route to a long-term high performance. So, so we were kind of forced, forced to take our own medicine, I suppose. And, um, and yeah, now, I mean, we have now like a, a description of how we work in, uh, in Team Denmark, a model that we work from. We've discussed what theories we work from and so forth. But I also have a version which is more of my own um, that I always also published, uh, and uh, and uh, I think um, it's probably the newest one. And and in that one, I I formulate the idea that athletes have to be all in uh, as a, as a, like a, as a metaphor, right? And what I mean by all in is is first sort of in the moment. So they need to be able to train the ability to be in that present moment and our and our mind keeps sort of taking us away from the present moment into the past into the future and stuff but you know the ability to keep coming back you know to that present moment is something that we can train you know and and um, and nurture and that we should and then the second it's also about being in acceptance of the unpleasant so we need that idea of being able to accept that well, you know, there are moments when our minds tell us that we are absolutely great, amazing, you know, we can win the whole thing, right? But there are also moments where we look around and think, whoa, the other, my competitors, they look, you know, sharp and, you know, they, I'm not well prepared and all that kind of doubt comes, comes up to. Um, so, uh, and I think we need to be able to sort of accept that this is the way that the mind works. Uh, in, and then... And then in order for the for the third in, which is in pursuit of our values. So we need to really teach or help athletes look at who do I want to be? What do I want my career and my sport to be about beyond just the results? Um, and, um, and I think that those are some of the really important parts of what we are actually working on. Um, yeah. For people who would want to read more about this, where can they find this or what, what have you published this under? Yeah, um, so I, I really enjoyed, I, I was invited to write a chapter for a book called Expert Approaches to Sports Psychology that was edited by um, 
by Mark Aoyagi and Arthur Pokswadowski, who I consider to be two of my good friends. And, um, and I was very, I, th I felt very fortunate to sort of write my own sort of philosophy in, in, in a chapter there. And uh, so I, I can absolutely recommend to have a look at. And there's, I think there's 20 or 21 other uh, sports sites that have written a chapter. And I find it myself really inspiring to, to see how we can work from different approaches uh, and still that, that working like committing to an approach and developing a, like a solid philosophy for how you work is a key to a good performance, but that these philosophies can be a little bit different across the different people. I think that, that that's a key takeaway message for me. Yeah, that, that book. Oh, go ahead. No, I, I want to say, I mean, and then just, just to sort of finish up, I, I think uh, there's three more little ins. Oh yeah, <laughs> so great. To be all in. And uh, I think one of them, uh, well, one of them is uh, to be in balance. And by here, I mean sort of balancing tough, hard work with recovery, but also balance, balancing sort of a, a, a drive to improve with self-compassionate approach when you fail. Like So that, that type of balance is very important. Um, I think you need to be in love with your sport. Sometimes we see that athletes almost at least moments at a time completely forget why they're doing their sport, like what, what they loved about it in the first place. You know, you... You see it when you experience an athlete that has uh, has an injury, for example, right? And you say, well, why did you start? And like, what is it that you love about the sport? And they'll tell you a story that, you know, they don't even know. I mean, somebody told me, told them they were good at it. And then they started doing a bit more and a bit more, and, you know, and it's just like one thing. And they forgot themselves in that process and and helping them to remember that is, is important. And then the final in, I think that is for me, like underlining, like underlying all of them is, is to being be in a good sport environment. So that, that's the last, I mean, you have to be in a good sporting environment and and we can maybe later discuss what that means, but but um, absolutely nobody can, nobody sort of, or well, maybe a few people can actually make it on their own, but it's not a model that I uh, want to build a, a good sort of sustainable sports system about. Well, we're going to talk about the environment right now because this is this is the core part of your work. And just for those who are listening again to get the book, Expert Approaches to Sports Psychology, it's it's sort of a you're being very humble about it. It's like a collection of sports psych powerhouses writing about how they view peak performance and a lot of really creative and innovative ideas. I remember your chapter in there. Sean McCann wrote a great chapter that I thought was really cool talking about mm -hmm. offensive and defensive skills. There's some really unique ways of framing the work that we do so would highly recommend that book for people who are interested in more um, sports psych theory and practice i, I want to turn our attention now to the environment because at least from my perspective you're one of the most vocal proponents of creating a healthier sport environment in the name of pursuing high performance i think you were the first person whose work i read that was really as attentive to the environment as to the individual performer. I think a lot of what I had been exposed to before your work was really about individual ideas of peak performance and what it meant for one elite athlete to be great at one key moment. Um, but then of course, if you ask athletes like, well, what are the biggest factors impacting your performance? I mean, environment comes up like everywhere, right? <laughs> Organizational stress, the experience of the game, social pressure. And so that, that was a disconnect for me that your work really helped to resolve. I guess, tell us the genesis of that, right? Like how did you land on the idea that the environment was so important and how has that now shaped the rest of the work that you do? Yeah, uh, thanks a lot for that. Um, 
I, uh, I think it's, I think the idea came about once when I was working as an applied sports psychologist, actually, and I actually left academia, left after my education and wanted to be a, a private practitioner. And I, I, I remember working with athletes where, you know, when you sort of collected their stories, it seemed like everything was fine. They were doing well. They were good at what they did. They were, you know, selected for important teams and all that stuff, right? And and still they would come into my office and they would start sort of crying and and not, you know, not being, not having a high level of well-being, not feeling that they were sort of connected in their sports. And and when we started to unpack what it was about, I I I found that it was about sort of being in the middle of an environment that will almost tear you apart. Like, so you'd have one coach saying you should do this and that, and then you'd have another coach saying you should do the opposite. And one say, you know, you're ready to move to a different club. And another one saying, no, 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 you should certainly stay longer. And, and then you'd have the school saying, well, you know, you should probably not pay so much attention to the sport right now, just get your education finished first, right? And you'd have a mom's, you know, agreeing with the school and a dad with the, with the coach, right? <laughs> and then, you know, the friends, they just wanted, you know, to hang out and, you know, to go out in the town. And, and it was like, so, and, and I looked, I sort of opened, uh, <laughs> opened my sports psychology toolbox and looked and found like nothing that could help them. I mean, I could, maybe I could, you know, teach them to think, a little bit more positively about it but it but it really wasn't very good so i i felt that would be that would be doing a disservice to, to them really right so i tried to do something about the environments i contacted the coaches i remember like one of them hanging up on me saying you know thinking it was a prank right that i said you know i, I phoned and said i i have an idea here could this athlete maybe be sort of in your environment two days a week and another one a couple of days so that she wouldn't have to drive so far every day and and uh, so everything <laughs> it was really tricky but that stimulated me to to sort of develop the idea of uh, of what is it that characterizes talent development environments that provide sort of the the or make it I mean, we found that some environment are simply more successful than others in helping athletes make a transition to the elite level. So we so we have environments that have, you know, good facilities and money and everything, but still very rarely an athlete actually goes all the way from that environment. And we have other environments that might be less affluent or might be, you know, might not even have the best facilities or whatever, but they just keep producing top level athletes. And this was what sort of got me started. And then I wrote a PhD proposal and, you know, the rest is history, as they say. But then we we started sort of, you know, looking into what is it that characterizes environments that that are really sort of helping athletes make that difficult transition into the elite level. And so what, what did you find? What makes for a successful sport environment yeah i mean we um originally we did sort of um case study like the, the whole idea is that i i want i think it's important to do case studies right we can't just ask coaches or ask a, a single athlete or whatever we need to try and look at environments the way that they are even though it's a snapshot in time we so so we we looked at so i, I observed like i spent uh, weeks and weeks in these environments, um, observing their training, their social events, their communication between athletes and coaches. I interviewed coaches, I interviewed athletes, managers, parents, like really trying to get a grip what is it that this environment does, right? And we did it in different environments. Some were um, 
like in different countries and in different types of environments. Some would be a school academy having sports. Some would be a national team. Some would be a, a normal sort of club team. And and uh, and after my PhD, obviously, this has been done in another like a whole range of other sports as well. So it's been expanded a lot. And what we find is that on the one hand, every environment is unique. I mean. There's no two environments that are exactly the same. At the same time, it seems that the good environments, they share some features that are um, very important, we believe, uh, you know, in, in creating sort of good, and, and those some of those features are related to the structure of the environment and others related to the culture. And so if we maybe look at the structure first, um, one thing we found was what we call integrated efforts, which means that there's a dialogue among the people in the environment, not only the athletes. So instead of an athlete negotiating demands between like coaches saying one thing, school teachers another, maybe what, what happens if, if school teachers and coaches actually speak to each other and, you know, try to coordinate saying, well, you know, I'm not going to put a training camp right where there's exams or, I'm, you know, I'm sort of, you know, trying to make it, make it, make, make for a better daily environment, right? That was one thing we found. We also found that role models was very important that in all of these environments, there was this idea that you met your role models as part of your daily training. You didn't just watch them on the television. Sometimes when we look at the professional sports, it seems like the first team is very isolated from the whole academy or the, you know, the teams below that. But in these environments, we found that the, the talented athletes, they would discuss things. They would look at training sessions and whatever from the top, top people in the whole world. So they had that sort of connection to the to the high level as as, as some of the very, very important parts of sort of the, the structure of the environment. Um, and then there was also um, things related to the culture of the environment, like sort of the underlying values and assumptions that guide the way that we work together. And and there we also found like maybe maybe most importantly that that these environments were coherent or these cultures were coherent. So there was a, a high level of sort of alignment between what we say we want to do, the values that we display to the world and, you know, what we write on the web page and whatever, <laughs> and then what we actually could observe in the environments. Uh, that's that's quite tricky to do, but we found that these environments were really good at it. And, uh, and then the environments were often sort of um, supported by values of, of um, you know, having space for free initiatives or allowing athletes to, to be, to display at least somehow autonomy and, you know, have influence on the training and, and train on their own sometimes. Um, we found they were focused on knowledge sharing, that there was a, like, really clear values that, you know, we talked to each other, we learned from each other. This was athlete to athlete it was coach to coach manager to to coach like in, on all different levels it was that sharing of knowledge it was um yeah so like so we so, so basically a certain sort of type of cultures that were that were not just about sort of being very competitive um we didn't see that coaches kept their secret you know we saw that it was all about creating you know that space for sharing and discussing and you know trying to evolve collaborating with other clubs in the vicinity you know um yeah you could even we even saw in several occasions that that would be sort of monthly meetings where coaches from two competing clubs would you know discuss approaches and um, what, like in order to you know improve and get better and and all that right so uh so it, it was really quite inspirational i think you know to see that there that these environments um actually sort of 
you know, displayed a, 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 what I would call sort of more of a, of a modern and sustainable approach to elite sport than what I was expecting when I started. It's super interesting to me because, you know, like you said, the, the cultures are unique, the values are unique, right? The environments are different, what people are working on is different, but these features seem to cut across. And I think this is so important because I think we underestimate the impact of the environment on our daily experience, right? On our behavior, on how we feel, what we think about. And I'd love to hear your, your take on that. I think the other piece is, at least from a talent development perspective, I think um, certainly in North American sport, we we really value the talent selection process, right? This idea that there's one night every year where you're going to somehow make your team infinitely better than it was just five days ago. And sometimes it can happen, right? You know, you sometimes you draft an incredible player who does change the, the culture or the entire environment or entire experience. But more often than not, the players you're drafted need to be brought into an environment that allows their talent to bloom versus finding talent that's just ready-made to go. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, both the impact of the environment on behavior and also the difference between development and selection in the environment. Yeah, I think uh, like for me, it's like three different perspectives on, on what talent is that have been competing, but also evolving over time in, in research, at least maybe not as much in, in a sort of in the practice world right but uh, but at least in the research and i think the first sort of the first period where we did where we researched talent there was a lot of focus on identification and um i think without saying without being too harsh i can sort of sum up the research and say well you know basically what we realized was that it's just too damn difficult you know we we, we believe that we can spot that unique talent but really we cannot and we find you know the relative age effect tells us that we find athletes that are a little bit older within the age cohort right and, and we believe they are more talented but really they're not they're just a bit older and 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 too many of the athletes that we select do not make it to the sort of elite and too many of the ones who come to the elite level did not actually were not selected at an early age and so forth right so um so i think that pushed the research into sort of what we could call a second wave in a way where um there was a lot where we said, well, you know, maybe there is a there is a thing called talent, perhaps, but it's really hard to, to see. And therefore, let's focus more on the training. And that's when the whole discussion around late specialization versus early specialization, like 10,000 hour rule or not, um, deliberate practice, deliberate play, all these different concepts came into play. And, and the main method we used there was, you know, in um, interviewing athletes who made it to the end of their career at a very high level and asking them about the, their route to that level and then you know comparing it to a, a, a diff like a similar cohort who didn't quite make it to the elite level and then seeing the differences right and what we found there was that um, by and large the top level elite athletes actually often specialize a bit earlier and describe their um, training as being extremely sort of elitist and focused and serious at a later age uh, than the ones who, you know, maybe perform early, but don't last and don't make it into the very elite ranks. So there in that, that, so that gives a combination of us focusing on talent detection. And then when we select them, we put them into programs where we ask them to, uh, you know, specialize early and be really serious at a very early age. 
because now they're selected to be part. And these are both of these things are, in my view, wrong. <laughs> so it's like it's just not really very good. And that that's why sort of this third wave, which is the holistic ecological approach that that looks at the I mean holistic, no, sorry, ecological means that we look at environments and not just individuals. We understand that we need to if you know, if you want to know why someone makes it to the elite level, we need to understand the environments that they develop within. And then holistic means that we look at the whole environment, not just what happens on the in the sport part and on the court, but also like relations to the family and the school and like the whole environment that the athletes experience. Um, and this is, in my view, sort of a, a third wave that that kind of, you know, also tells us as practitioners not just to uh, detect and not just to focus on how to make good training, like, but but to really, you know, think about how do we create good development environments. Yeah. So I, I'm glad you finally raised the holistic ecological approach. I didn't intentionally lead you there. That's where I wanted to go next. So I'm so glad we're here. Yeah, no, that's so fine. Tell us, I want to get practical on the last 10 yeah. to 15 minutes we have together. So you've summed up really nicely these ideas about how peak performance comes about. You've summed up really nicely the phases of the data around talent, you know, selection, development, identification. And you've landed on this theory that I think in your team Denmark work, you still highlight how important the environment is. You still highlight how important the values are um, and you highlight your own theory all in there. It's really nice and, and bundled up. I guess start to tell us like, if we wanted to take this approach in our own sport organization, if we got off of this podcast and it was like, yes, that guy is 100% correct about everything he just <laughs> said, we should absolutely listen to him. No questions asked. What would be some recommendations you'd give for people who wanted to implement more of this ecological approach, who wanted to build a healthier, more high-performing environment? Yeah, I think uh, we can look at the way we have done it, um, perhaps in Denmark over the over the last 10, 15 years. I think that, that has been like a process of slowly, you know, transitioning into this understanding of what talent is. And, and um, if we go back 10, 15 years, the way that our elite sport institution like in Denmark would support sports would often be focused on individual athletes that were very talented or a team that was performing really well. We, we, now, um, we, I think the way we understand it is that uh, good talent development equals good talent development environments. And, the, and also on the elite level, like uh, good elite sport is also good elite sport environments. And therefore, when we uh, educate coaches, a key part of that education is around their role as leaders of an environment, not just sort of a coach-athlete relationship. How do we build cultures? How do we create structures? Um, we, um, so we so we talk about it a lot. If, 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 a, if a sports federation comes and says, well, you know, we have this really, really talented athlete, you know, could we do something special for him or her? Like, could we find some money? Could we find some sports psychology could we find whatever type of services they're requiring today we would say well if if it's only that athlete then no even though they're like really high level say well you know if this is to be sustainable there needs to be more than an athlete we need to have an environment around sort of the athlete so if you come and say there's one who's really good but there's really a group of 10 people that are training together 
every day, you know, and building an environment. We have coaches that are committing to it. And, you know, we have a federation that sees the importance of educating these coaches and all, all that stuff. Then by all means, I mean, we will find the money, money for that. So, so on, on a macro level, it's, it has really been a change of, of thinking, you know, that, that what we support, what we try to do every day is to build good development environments. And then we just trust that really good athletes will come out of those environments. And so far we've seen like a, since that 10, 15 years where we've been working on that approach, I mean, our sort of metal statistics and stuff has just risen a lot uh, at, at the important championship. So, and, and there's a, a million reasons for that, I know. But I can't help but look at it and think, well, you know, I think we've, I think we've got a, a, a sort of an approach that I think it's, it's also extra necessary for us. We are a really small country, so we don't have a hundred. Uh, we can't just, you know, so we, we need to think about how do we create like good environments where athletes experience meaning and, and you know, and, and sort of connection and everything in the daily life right so um, because if, if just two athletes stop then we have no more left at that level right <laughs> so we can't afford to to have environments where athletes lose their motivation and just you know don't want to be a part of it anymore so yeah, that's like on a, on a policy level you could say yeah i think it's really interesting and and i think you know you're talking about denmark being a small country but i think this would be true in professional sports where you also have quote-unquote small market teams right teams that don't have the big flashy draw, they don't have a natural talent pool. If you think about it at the college level, you've got um, maybe bigger programs that don't have, you know, what we would consider like the traditional raw talent in your backyard kind of thing. And so you do have to create an environment that attracts people, that develops people. And you talk about sort of trusting that it'll work out, but obviously you have the data that supports it too, right? You've got different metal count and all that other stuff that's sort of showcasing how this, this approach works. I think if you were to, let's take it one step further. I love the policy example. I love the resource allocation example, because this is such an accessible common thing that we think about, right? Like, oh, of course, we just need to pour more money into this person. And then eventually they'll turn out magnificent and we'll have done our job. Um, but what about for, for coaches who, who want to really create this environment? You know, the thing that jumped out to me maybe most about what you were sharing as you were talking about the data was the integrated environment. And that's one where I feel like we could personally still make some progress, but I'd love to hear your perspective on what coaches might be able to do to really maximize this holistic ecological approach. Yeah, I mean, we've been working quite sort of deliberately on, on that part as well. And, and I think when we do it well, and, and we don't always, I mean, but when we do it well, then coaches will consider their task to be far more than just what's happening in the training sessions. So they'll be they'll be deliberately working to build like connections and you know built environments. And uh, for example, a club coach will have uh, regular meetings with the national team coach and the um, academy coach if there's an academy or whatever like. So athletes they're typically uh, quite often actually they're in multiple environments. But it used to be coaches never even talked to each other. Like, you know, you're, I'm doing this thing in my environment and you're doing that thing in your environment. That's fine, right? Now, uh, you know, there's, there's uh, you know, a, a club coach will say, well, you know, I've, I've got this particular athlete who's been selected for a national team training weekend. And uh, I just want to know, like, what, what are you going to do? And how do I prepare my athlete, you know, to get the most out of it? Please tell me what's sort of 
what what are you working on that when he comes back from that you know we can still I can ask about it and try and learn from it and integrate some of the stuff that you worked on in our own training here you know how do we build that bond um it's also the same with the schools like we, we you know that there'll be regular meetings there'll be people assigned at the high schools for example that are, are like have been assigned the task of communicating with the sport so on behalf of the athlete so it's not an athlete that needs to negotiate it's there are meetings where they meet up and they discuss and they say, well, you know, this is the plan for the coming months for this particular in the sport and in, in the school. And how do we match that? How do we make sure that we don't um, overburden the athletes and that we don't put all the tough stuff at the same time? Right. Um, so there, there'll be all these all these little things where a coach knows my role is not just the training. My role is to, to sort of try and facilitate this in, in environment right so i think that that's um and also taking an interest in the athletes beyond just their um sort of sporting performance like actually you know taking an interest in who they are and what they want to stand for and and uh, how they're doing with their families and 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 things like this um there'll be examples where parents are invited to take part in training sessions like every every last so if, if there's a weekend training in, in the triathlon federation, the last hour of that or two hours maybe of that session, there'll be something for the for the parents, right? So that when they are doing their last bike session, the athletes come in a bit early and we discuss what's been going on in this camp, like how do we experience the athletes? What were the key messages they got? How can you support that when you come home? What would be good kinds of questions, you know, you could ask over dinner that would be supportive and not just about performance and what's and times and and things right so so i think these are just examples of how we try to integrate uh, environments and i think also for me as an applied sports psychologist i often find myself in a role where i tell an athlete well you know if, if you're struggling with this this is not something that we you and i can do alone let's like who do we need to help us here like how do we need to do that so then then we'll call in a meeting with a, <laughs> two different coaches and me and the athlete and maybe someone else right and we'll discuss how do we how do we solve this? I think this approach is so it's so interesting and valuable because I guess the word that comes to mind for me, you're talking about integrative, and obviously that speaks to it, but I'm, I'm hearing how inclusive this is too, right? Like everybody is being engaged and brought into this process of maximizing each athlete's abilities and performance. And I can imagine that in these environments then people feel like a different degree of ownership, of pride, of connection to what's gone on. Um, it's not just, you know, coaches over here versus academics over here, and everyone's competing to figure out who's most important, but it's everyone's sort of bought in on one big vision. And it just, even listening to you talking about it, it feels like a place where I could imagine people feel really engaged, deeply energized, and very motivated, because in a sense, everyone's role is is valued differently but valued equally the input matters um and it is so cohesive and collaborative has that been your experience with it yeah spot on spot on i mean that's exactly what again i want to say when we do it well this is exactly what we uh experience right and, and of course we don't always succeed but we i think we do quite often and, and I, this is exactly what we what we experience and I, if i can just give an example i remember in one of my case studies, I was in Norway and I was looking at, at, at a kayaking environment, like a flat water speed kayaking environment, right? And, and obviously these athletes were training very hard, you know, and sometimes perhaps 
they had a little bit less time for school than you know what they would have liked and that's the way it is right but but one of the brilliant things they did there was that a couple of times a year the kayaking environment like the national team coach and the club they would come together to invite the teachers from the school part to take part in like a good afternoon where they would be introduced to kayaking they would do maybe a few races there would be some races where they could see their athletes like their students in in that element where they absolutely excel and then afterward there would be like a barbecue you know <laughs> and someone would tell them that that they also have i mean that they also are part of the success here right that that their approach as uh, as teachers was important for the athletes in order to you know to achieve what they achieve right so it's you know you you get that sense that you're part of it's not school against sport right it's it's we're all in it together like we're all doing our very best little bits you know to support this athletes and living out their dreams and um, this is just one example but i just think it's a really good one <laughs> yeah it's, it's a beautiful example and i think it, it reminds me you know that some of the things that we especially in the sport environment you know working across a campus or working with other people who are maybe not as directly tied into the on-court performance or on-field performance we take for granted some of these experiences, right? Mm -hmm. We take for granted, like, oh, why would anyone want a barbecue? You know, like the, te the team is the team and we don't need to throw a barbecue for, you know, Sammy's parents, like they'll figure it out. But these little things that seem sort of trivial or even like meaningless mm -hmm. end up being the things that people say are the most impactful, the most important thing that happened all year. And so it's just a good reminder that these little things that we might overlook or don't think are so important because they're not immediately connected to how we're going to perform on game day do make a huge difference. We've mm -hmm. got just a couple of minutes left. So I'm going to ask you a really tough question to, to wrap up if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, sure. You get to pick one thing that people listening start doing differently tomorrow to promote a better sport environment. What is the one thing you're telling them to go do? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, that is a tough one. Um, I think for the, I think the most important thing is that the people who are um, working in the environment, so not the athletes, but the coaches and the managers, they actually sit together and start discussing their philosophy of talent development and a good environment. Um, so I'm not going to say that, that there's a recipe that everybody should follow, but I think that what we definitely see is that they have a, the good environments have a shared philosophy. So uh, rather than one coach doing one thing, another one doing another, and you know thinking that we're probably on the same page, right? And and um, I think to sit down and discuss what do we mean by talent? What is a good environment? What is our purpose here? What do we want? What would be proud of that that um, athletes and people? learn in our environment beyond just sporting skills like what kind of people do we want to develop here to start by discussing that then i'm sure they'll find ways of doing it and things that they need to then change in their practice um, but i find that too often they come together to discuss um how like pitch time like how do we share time on and and like all the practical stuff but they never stop to discuss their philosophies and i think they should that is an awesome answer. I would not have come up with that one, but I, I really like it conceptually. Dr. Christopher Henriksen, this has been an incredible conversation. Before we wrap up, tell people where they can find you, learn more about you, your work, where can they read some of what you published, all that good stuff. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's another. I mean, I am on I am on social media a little bit on LinkedIn and on on Twitter, so you can find me there at least. I'm not a, I'm not super active, but I am. I do um, I do really attempt to publish not only sort of the the hardcore scientific bits, but to publish things that are very readable to uh, to practitioners. That I, I actually find that sometimes we have. Um, We've shot ourselves in the foot a little bit in academia, you know, in in the ways that we have sort of decided that that um, that journal papers should be almost unreadable, <laughs> should have four papers on philosophical four pages on philosophical positioning and stuff, right? I think sometimes you know we're not doing ourselves a favor there, but uh, but I, so so I try to publish uh, other stuff as well, and I think um, yeah, social media, Twitter. Um, I don't know if that's very popular at the moment. <laughs> depends on who you ask right <laughs> yeah i suppose i suppose um yeah but well, i mean start, I will be start sure. with the start with that chapter in the book i think that's really nice um the uh the the team denmark sports psychology philosophy model is is, is uh, available uh free of charge online and uh, i think that's a nice place to start and um and reach out perhaps yeah awesome well thank you for making yourself available Thank you for all the knowledge, wisdom, practical experience you shared with us today. I'm going to link to some of these papers for people uh, when we post the episode, so they should be very, very accessible. Uh, Dr. Christopher Henriksen, thank you so much for your time. Um, thank you. I thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Perform Podcast, where we unlock and uncover the principles and practices of health and high performance for individuals, teams, and organizations. Until next time, thanks for joining.